The game of high politics, diplomacy, and empire building continued as usual in Europe for most of the 18th century. But across the Atlantic, new ideas were spreading, which would create a new nation in a new world. Hello, and welcome back to From the Bastille to Berlin, a podcast about the Western world in an age of ideologies. Episode 6, The Conservative Revolution. Before I begin, I should mention that I'm still figuring out how to schedule this podcast on a regular basis, plus, since Christmas, I've been rewriting some of my planned episodes, so my apologies for the mess in the last six weeks of radio silence, and for any other interruptions that may arise. Right now, I'm thinking that I'm going to try to release episodes every other week. So, on with the show. Last time, we had a sidetrack episode on the scientific revolution, and this week, it's back to the main narrative, such as it is. If you remember a couple of episodes ago, I talked about the Scottish Enlightenment and how it was built on trade and produced this philosophy of common sense that said that ordinary people were capable of having well-formed and valid opinions on a lot of things. This was radical stuff coming from the academy, but within a few years, it would cross the Atlantic and it became more radical still. Now that term, common sense, is going to be the name of a pamphlet protesting the English government's decision to start taxing its colonies on the eastern seaboard of North America. But we haven't really talked about these colonies, so it's time to introduce them. In 1607, Three ships sailed into the Chesapeake Bay and founded a trading post near the mouth of the James River in southern Virginia. Within three decades, several other English colonies, as well as one Dutch colony, had been established, and they were all desperate for more manpower. The slave trade was still developing, but the main source of labor at this point was coming from the underclasses of Europe. For the next 150 years, different groups settled on the eastern seaboard of North America. These were Germans. Protestant Irish, Lowland Scots, both Royalist and Roundhead refugees from the Civil War, and of course, religious dissenters of all stripes. There were Anabaptists from the continent, Protestants from France, recusant Catholics from England, English Presbyterians, and Scottish Episcopalians, not to mention the Congregationalist Puritans of New England and Baptists and Anabaptist sects of all kinds. However, in most of these colonies, the state religion remained the Church of England, at least officially and membership in the church was a prerequisite for political rights. What this meant was that in some colonies, only a quarter of the populace, not counting slaves, could participate in the political process. But here's the kicker. A quarter of the male population voting was still an incredible voting base for the 18th century. Back in England, it's estimated that only 10% of the population had the right to vote at all. And on the continent of Europe, well, no one really voted at all. And of course, speaking of people with no rights, we've got to talk about slavery. African slaves were first brought to the English colonies in 1619 when a Dutch trader sold a few at Jamestown in Virginia. But for most of the 17th century, African slaves were simply too expensive to be cost-effective in the new colonies. Mortality rates were high, and it was usually cheaper to import cheap laborers from Ireland, who technically were called indentured servants, but really were little better than slaves. 
In particular, during Cromwell's bloody suppression of revolts in Ireland, tens of thousands of poor Irish were shipped across the Atlantic. But the 18th century brought new needs. As the population stabilized, white labor became too risky. If they escaped, they could blend in. So the planters of the southern colonies in particular began to increasingly rely on African slaves, which contributed to that triangular trade that we talked about last time. This type of business meant that ports like Boston, Charleston, and New York became centers of commerce. And as an added bonus, Walpole and his successors adopted a stance of benign neglect toward many of the tariffs and restrictions on trade with other countries that were still technically on the books. This meant that for most of this period, the line between a legitimate merchant and a smuggler was mm, razor thin. Goods from French, Spanish, and Portuguese possessions would be used as, quote, ballast in ships that carried legitimate goods from other places. But the French weren't quite ready to leave all this alone. They saw that the British were making bank on their colonies and wanted a piece of the action. So they began planning to sneak in by the back door. The French held a string of colonial possessions starting in Quebec, continuing through the Great Lakes region, and down the Mississippi to St. Louis, and finally New Orleans. The border between English and French colonies was disputed and basically boiled down to who had the forts and who could make the best alliances with the local native tribes. In this last area, the French had a clear advantage. While the English had managed to make common cause with the Iroquois Confederacy and the Cherokee, the majority of the Native American groups west of the Appalachians sided with the French. Podcast footnote. As you might have guessed from that last sentence, I am from the American South, which means, of course, that I pronounce the name of the mountain range Appalachian, which is how it is supposed to be pronounced, and is pronounced by the people who live there. If you pronounce it the other way, I immediately form the completely unwarranted judgment that you are the type of person who goes to art museums to look at Amish quilting, listen to folkways on NPR that one time to learn about hillbillies, probably reads anthropology for fun, and refers to the Scotch-Irish influence in the South at every opportunity. I realize that none of this is fair in the least, but that's what people from Appalachia assume when you mispronounce the name of their region. Please don't. End podcast footnote. At any rate, the French had the upper hand when it came to diplomatic relations with the local tribes, and soon they had a string of forts in the region around the Ohio River. The governor of Virginia, Robert Dinwiddie, was alarmed by this development and sent a small force of Virginia militia led by a young officer named George Washington to strengthen a fort at the place where the Allegheny and Monongahela rivers meet to form the Ohio. Yes, that's a mouthful. However, the French got there first. Washington was forced to build a counterfort and decided to strike preemptively. Unfortunately, events quickly turned against his small force due to a combination of inexperienced and bad weather. Washington was forced to surrender and withdraw. But it was bigger than this, because it touched off a global conflict that would see the British and French fighting on three continents and at sea around the globe. This was the Seven Years' War. After initial setbacks, William Pitt the Elder took power in Parliament and created a strategy to win the war. Essentially, Pitt decided to fund Frederick the Great of Prussia in a proxy war to distract the French in continental Europe, while England concentrated on fighting the French overseas. The strategy was that the Prussians would keep the majority of French forces tied down, while Britain's resources would be directed to the North American and Indian theaters. The main points for this narrative concern the war in North America. In this conflict, there would be two main attacks, one down the St. Lawrence River to capture the fortresses of Louisbourg, Quebec, and Montreal, and another campaign beginning in Virginia to recapture the forks of the Ohio. 
The second campaign got off to a rocky start when it ran into a trap, resulting in the death of its commander, Edward Braddock. However, it was saved from total disaster by Colonel Washington, who managed to organize an orderly retreat. The next commander, John Forbes, learned from Braddock's mistakes and managed to take control of the forks and rebuilt the fortifications, renaming the place Fort Pitt, and the town around it, Pittsburgh. Meanwhile, the larger British force was wildly successful in subduing French Canada. They reduced the fortress of Louisbourg, laid siege to Quebec after the famous Battle of the Plains of Abraham, and finally took Montreal in 1760. Britain reigned supreme in North America, and in the Treaty of Paris of 1763, the remaining French claims would be divided among the British and the Spanish. Not bad. Except that to do this, Pitt had to go on a borrowing spree. And once the war was won, it was time to pay the piper. But unfortunately, there was a new king in town, George III, and he didn't care much for Pitt. Instead, George wanted to throw his own weight around, so he found a new minister to set about paying down the debt. Taxes were already high in Britain itself, so the government needed a new source of revenue, the colonies that had just been saved. Now, as I said before, prime ministers from Walpole to Pitt had pursued a policy that could be termed benign neglect toward the colonies. Essentially, there were a bunch of laws on the books that made it difficult and expensive to do business. In particular, tariffs were notoriously high and hard to enforce. Plus, there were laws on the books that said that colonial planters and merchants were only allowed to buy and sell goods through the mother country. But these laws also enjoyed support from vested interests in London, especially the East India Company. But it really wasn't possible to enforce these laws, so the government decided on a policy of selective enforcement that turned a blind eye toward activities that were technically, according to the law, maybe smuggling, but they weren't going to be enforced in the name of developing the colonies economically. But following the Seven Years' War, revenue became the primary concern. So the large navy that had become the dominant power on the sea during the war now began enforcing smuggling laws again. In addition, Parliament passed new taxes on the American colonies. After all, since the colonies were the biggest beneficiaries of the war, they should help foot the bill, right? It was only fair. But there was a tiny flaw in this line of reasoning, which was that it assumed that enforcing these new measures wasn't going to cost more than the revenue they brought in. It didn't reckon with the fact that the colonists just weren't going to pay up. The thing was, most of the colonies had been involved only minimally. Nearly all of the disputed territory was claimed by Virginia, which is why Washington had been dispatched to take care of a problem near modern-day Pittsburgh. Why should the other colonies pay for Virginia's problem? But even the Virginians were incensed. Their legislature hadn't passed these taxes, they hadn't voted for Parliament's spending sprees, plus they had paid for the war in blood and sweat already, hadn't they? Why should they have taxes forced on them by people who didn't represent them? Now if that line of reasoning sounds a little familiar, it's because it does. It's straight out of John Locke. If you recall a few episodes ago, John Locke had this notion that the social contract means that if the people are unhappy with their government's policies, they are well within their rights to object, and the government needs to listen, or else. This is because government represents the people. The government's power comes from the people. And if the people don't feel like their government is representing them, they can refuse to go through with it, and they can refuse to obey this government. This government has forfeited its legitimacy. Remember what happened to James II. The state exists to serve the people, not the other way around. But in the colonies, a new emphasis was emerging. 
Locke's idea of the body politic, truth be told, consisted of these new sugar barons and aristocratic landowners of the emerging new world of trade. But in America, the body politic was becoming a far more egalitarian matter. Small farmers, Boston merchants, and southern planters all objected to the new taxation together. This tax was unjust because their representatives hadn't had a say in it. It was just common sense. So, for most of the 1760s and early 1770s, the colonists had a running battle with Parliament. The government would pass new taxes only to run into trouble with enforcing them or facing boycotts of British goods. Once this happened, Parliament would ease up temporarily before trying a new tax and the cycle would repeat. Meanwhile, tensions were rising. In Boston, Massachusetts, the governor brought in troops to protect royal officials from the mob violence and civil unrest that were rising. But on March 5, 1770, a group of local toughs began to argue with a soldier on guard duty. As the argument escalated, an angry crowd began to form, and the soldier sent for help, which was duly dispatched. The crowd grew ugly as reinforcements arrived, but the commander still maintained the order to hold fire. Then the mob began throwing things at the soldiers and taunting them, leading one of them to fire into the crowd out of frustration. His comrades, thinking the order to fire had been given, discharged their muskets, and when the dust cleared, three were dead, and two more would die of their wounds, and one would survive. The governor was able to restore order by promising a fair trial in Boston itself for the soldiers. However, most of the soldiers were acquitted on the grounds of self-defense due to being represented by a brilliant young attorney named John Adams. Meanwhile, cooler heads were beginning to prevail both in the colonies and in Parliament, which eased up on most of the taxes it had levied. However, for the sake of principle, they decided to leave one tax in place. The tax on tea. Essentially, the East India Company was having trouble moving its merchandise because of the high import duties and the fact that it was easy for smugglers to get tea from the Dutch for a lower price. Since Parliament believed that the East India Company was too big to fail, after all, it was running India, they agreed to subsidize them, and they funded this through a new tax on tea. But they figured no one would notice, since the sticker price, even with the new tax, was now cheaper than its illicit competitors. Unfortunately, the American colonies had a surfeit of lawyers even back then, and they noticed the sneaky end run, and, well, organized a boycott on tea, even going so far as to put armed guards around ships loaded with tea to prevent them from unloading. And then a rumor spread that the governor was going to call in troops to forcibly unload the ships in Boston Harbor. And we all know what happened next. A group of agitators dressed up as Native Americans boarded the ships and dropped the tea into the harbor, after which they politely scrubbed the decks of any remaining detritus. When Parliament heard, it ordered that Boston Harbor be closed and the city put under military occupation. Once troops arrived, General Thomas Gage instituted martial law and turned the harbor into a military supply base. But at this point, the other colonies stepped in and started coordinating. Their legislators appointed delegations to form a committee to oversee relief efforts for Massachusetts and also to draft a list of grievances to send to King George. This was the First Continental Congress. Meanwhile, the garrison in Boston began staging raids on nearby towns to seize military stores that had been stockpiled for the war 15 years previously. But in April 1775, citizens of the towns of Lexington and Concord caught wind of what was about to go down thanks to a late-night ride by a Boston silversmith named Paul Revere. Regular troops faced off against the townsfolk on the Lexington town green, and then a shot was heard, and both sides thought the other had started firing. 
The British scattered the men at Lexington, but continued to be harassed throughout the day, as they attempted to remove the supplies from Concord and finally just get back to Boston. By the end of the day, on April 19, 1775, the colony of Massachusetts was in full revolt against the British government. Word of this made its way to Philadelphia, where the Continental Congress had reconvened. Immediately, they decided to dispatch one of their members to lead the ragtag army that was forming around Boston. You guessed it, George Washington. Washington had come a long way since he inadvertently started a world war. Once it was over, he had invested in real estate, married a wealthy widow, and become the wealthiest man in North America. He was also, coincidentally, up to his ears in debt to Glasgow merchants because of the unfair trade laws. But when Washington reached the army around Boston, he had his work cut out for him. The army was disorganized and broke. He needed to organize it and quickly if the fledgling rebellion was going to have any chance of accomplishing its goals. Meanwhile, many in the Congress still held out hope that they could patch things up with King George and Parliament. However, talk of independence was in the air. In 1775, Thomas Paine, a recent arrival from England, published a pamphlet entitled Common Sense, which took Locke's ideas of government to radical new conclusions. Quote, Mankind being originally equals in the order of creation, the equality could only be destroyed by some subsequent circumstance. The distinctions of rich and poor may in great measure be accounted for, and that without having recourse to the harsh, ill-sounding names of oppression and avarice. Oppression is often the consequence, but seldom or ever the means of riches. And though avarice will preserve a man from being necessitously poor, it generally makes him too timorous to be wealthy. But there is another and greater distinction for which no truly natural or religious reason can be assigned. That is, the distinction of men into kings and subjects. Male and female are the distinctions of nature. Good and bad, the distinctions of heaven. But how a race of men came into the world so exalted above the rest and distinguished like some new species is worth inquiring into, and whether they are the means of happiness or of misery to mankind. Perfectly clear, right? No? Maybe? Okay, let's translate this into modern English. First of all, Paine is making a distinction between two kinds of inequality. All of us are born equal. We come into this world with nothing. Most inequality, then, is the result of our choices. People who make good choices become rich and powerful, or at least virtuous and happy, while people who make bad choices become miserable, even in their wealth. Even people who are born into wealth have to make some use of it, or else they lose it. It's a theme that's very common in 18th century moral writing. When wealthy people behave badly, they lose their wealth, while poor people who work hard can have a better life. But if this kind of reasoning was so common, what's so radical? Well, it concerns that other kind of inequality, inherited inequality. It's about political leadership. Political leaders should be treated the same way that we treat other kinds of inequality. If King George makes bad decisions, we can fire him. He is answerable to the people. Supreme executive power proceeds from a mandate from the masses, not some farcical medieval ritual. We didn't vote for King George, so we don't need him. Who made him king anyway? Well, we did, by allowing it. And by the same token, we can dump him if we don't like his decisions. And as for Parliament, same deal. The colonies aren't represented. Why should free men be governed by what a bunch of bigwigs in London decide? They shouldn't. They didn't get a say in it. Radical stuff, that. 
and within a year of publication, similar sentiments would be expressed officially, if a little less polemically, in the Continental Congress's official resolution that separation from Britain was the only way forward. We know it today as the Declaration of Independence. When, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Wow, that's a bold philosophical stance for the late 18th century. But it was joined to a more down-to-earth list of specific grievances that looks suspiciously like the English Bill of Rights of 1689. In other words, the Declaration of Independence doesn't just make abstract philosophical claims, but it grounds them in a specific historical context. It points to the basis for Parliament's own legitimacy, the Glorious Revolution, as fundamentally similar to this rationale for independence. The argument is that the laws of England ought to have guaranteed us these rights, but we have been denied them. Therefore, we now have the right to separate from a government which has failed to respect those rights. It's a subtle argument worthy of the collaboration between the high-minded political theorist who penned it, a Virginia lawyer named Thomas Jefferson, who's going to be with us for a while, and the diplomatic and pragmatic Benjamin Franklin, who had negotiated the decision. But unless the British could be beaten, such a document would only be a scrap of paper to be used as evidence at the inevitable treason trial. However, the Congress had chosen its commander well. George Washington wasn't necessarily the best battlefield strategist in history, or even in the colonies, but he was a very far-sighted campaigner. Because of his involvement in the French and Indian War, he understood the way the British Army worked, and realized that while the British had to win, all the Americans had to do was not lose and keep the British occupied until they could secure French support. And eventually, Parliament would realize that keeping the colonies under continual military occupation was counterproductive and, more importantly, expensive. So Washington fought indecisive engagements, exploited what opportunities he could, worked to train his army as best he could, and paid for what expenses he could out of his own pocket since Congress was, well, broke. Then, in 1777, an American force led by General Horatio Gates captured a British army at Saratoga in New York. This decisive blow convinced the French that the fledgling United States was worth supporting and agreed to enter the war on the American side. Shortly after, Washington dispatched his right-hand man, Nathaniel Greene, to open up a second front in South Carolina to force the British to spread their forces thinner. The idea was to keep the British focusing on occupying territory, which would mean that they would have fewer men available to engage in the field. Meanwhile, Green would harry the British in the south as they attempted to reinforce their northern counterparts. Meanwhile, the French Navy would make it difficult for the British government to continue reinforcing those armies. And it worked brilliantly. In 1781, Washington and Greene's coordinated campaigns resulted in the capture of Lord Cornwallis, the second most senior British commander, as well as the main army of the Southern Theater. 
Within two years, all British forces were withdrawn, and the United States was recognized as a sovereign nation in the 1783 Treaty of Paris. So what do we make of this? What is the point of bringing this up? Well, one of these points is going to come up in a couple of episodes, which is that French support puts a major strain on the French treasury. But more important here, I think, is this idea of Republican government. Previous to this, nearly everyone assumes that some form of monarchy is desirable. Everyone assumes that you can't really have an orderly government without monarchy. True, there are some republics around, but even those have some form of monarchy. Even something like the Dutch Republic has the House of Orange. But here we have the first experiment in a modern democratic republic, a republic where most power resides with the people. This is a bold new experiment for the 18th century, and we're going to see this unfold in various ways in the main narrative. But if all of this is so radical, then why have I called this episode the conservative revolution? Why not start my narrative here? Why is this part of the background? Other than the fact that the fiscal crisis caused by the American Revolution will lead to the crisis which creates the French Revolution. Well, the fact that the American Revolution isn't purely ideological. We're not really in the age of ideology yet. True, there's all of that Jeffersonian rhetoric about the rights of man the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But beneath it is a grounding in historic rights, the rights of Englishmen, the rights that were guaranteed in 1689. Jefferson isn't denying that Parliament is legitimate. He's denying that it has a legitimate jurisdiction over the American colonies in a particular context, a particular historical context. No taxation without representation is a principle grounded in English law, not just in an abstract idea of human rights. This is a very important distinction and deeply impressed one of America's friends, an English politician by the name of Edmund Burke. And we're going to hear a little more from him in a future episode. And that's really where I'm going to leave it for now. America is now independent, and France is facing a fiscal crisis. We're going to talk about the American Constitution in a later episode, because that also happens in 1789, and is an important contrast to what's about to go down in France. But before we get to the French Enlightenment and the events that led up to the French Revolution, we're going to need to take some time to tour the cultural background to much of what's about to happen. That is, the contrast between classicism and romanticism. And so in the next episode, we're going to be talking about sense and sensibility. See you then.